So let's pray for Stephan as he comes. Father, we just ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Thank you for your servant, Stephan, as he brings the word this morning. And we just ask, God, that you'd give us ears to hear what you would say through our brother this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephan? Good morning, everyone. As Jim said, the good introduction. I'm Stefan. I'm one of the elders here at Emmanuel. I'm filling in for Pastor Daniel this week, and he is enjoying a much-needed break from preaching. And last week, we were blessed to hear from Joel uh, about the hope of Joseph. Uh, he said, high bar. Uh, I think we could all agree on that, and I, I can assure you it's all downhill from there. <laughs> Today, I'm going to talk about such heartwarming topics as New Year's resolutions, and total depravity. No, I, I, I'm just kidding. Um, but it really, if you want to uh, see a genuine deer-in-headlights look um, in someone's eyes, bring that up at a party, and uh, shortly, <laughs> shortly thereafter, you'll see that person flee, unless the person you're talking to happens to be a Reformed pastor, as I once was, and then your plan backfires. But in any case, enough of the digression. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the most amazing and spectacular stories in all of the Bible. This is the transfiguration of Christ. And before we do that, I'd like to pray again. You can never have too much prayer. Lord, I ask now as I share this word of this most amazing event that you would anoint these words and bring forth what you have to share with this congregation today. Show us more of who you are. And I ask that in your name. Amen. So this is how I'm going to approach the story. I'm going to give you a quick summary of the story, give you a little context surrounding it. Context is important to get the, pick out the meaning of things sometimes. Then I'm going to pose and answer a few questions about that passage that get us to sort of engage with it and think about it. And then finally explore how this applies to us today, which is really the most important part. Um, so here's the Notes version of this story of the transfiguration. Jesus brings three of his closest disciples up to a mountain to pray. On the mountain, Jesus' divine appearance is unveiled as he discusses his coming death with Moses and Elijah. Meanwhile, the disciples sleep through that part, but awaken early enough for Peter to make a verbal gaffe before the voice of God corrects him from a cloud. Jesus swears the disciples to secrecy about what just happened until a mysterious point in the future. So this has the makings of an amazing and very unusual event. And um, as we kind of jump into it, I want to just cover some context, as I said. So this story appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And all three of the gospel accounts place this transfiguration story 
within, this, within the same narrative sequence and the, the set of events that lead up to it. Now, that's very important, that they're all the same, uh, but those events include Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says, only God... Excuse me. <clears throat> Jesus says only God the Father could have revealed this to Peter. Jesus' request then following this is that the disciples not divulge his messianic identity. Jesus' prediction of his suffering follows that, which includes his death and resurrection as the Son of Man. Peter rebukes Jesus by saying this will not happen, after which Jesus rebukes him even more strongly in referring to him as Satan. And then finally, the warning to those who are ashamed of Jesus' words and him himself. So by attaching the transfiguration to the end of these events, sort of a capstone, the gospel authors are trying to tell us, they're trying to show us something, that Jesus is the Messiah despite this shocking prediction. It's really shocking especially to his disciples, given where they, where they were in the story. We, we can miss that because we have seen the story from the end. But they were in it as it was happening, so it was shocking to them, this idea that he has to suffer and die. And as I said, there are three accounts of this transfiguration, but today we're going to be reading from one of them, which is in the Gospel of Luke. If you would please turn or scroll to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36, I want to read this passage to you. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, verse 36 is the short ending of this story. Uh, we can see a more elaborated ending to this story in Matthew 17, 6 to 9. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. But it does provide some needed and important detail. It reads, When the disciples heard this, God's voice, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
So let's, let's look at this. I mentioned how shocking this story was. It may be lost on us, but how shocking it was to the disciples and seeing it from their perspective. At this point in Jesus' ministry, we have to ask the question, what beliefs about the Messiah did they have as first century Jews at this time? The last time I preached, which is oh, four or five years ago now, I talked about this too, but this theme is very important and it is recurring throughout the gospel accounts. It's something that the disciples have to deal with. In short, the traditional expectations by this point in history, very short, there's a long history here, um, were that the Messiah is a man. He's not divine. He's a wise spiritual leader, a charismatic military leader, he would return to destroy Israel's overlords and deliver Israel. And that person certainly would not die before the deliverance. So this covers their expectations, but what did Jesus say about himself that kind of upended that, turned it on its head? What conflicted with these beliefs? Now, going back to the, the context we talked about, right after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, or Messiah, the Son of the living God, which happened in Luke 9.20, Jesus began telling his disciples right after that, starting in Luke 9.22, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That simply did not fit with first century expectations. It just, it just didn't. It collided with it. The other important thing about this is it's not coincidental that Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, not the Son of God, as Peter described him. We can't miss the significance of this. Son of Man is a topic unto itself, very deep in study, but it's, suffice it to say, it is a multifaceted title for a person and it is found both in the Old Testament and New Testament. So let's dig in a little bit about this, just show a little bit of what this Son of Man is that contrasts with Son of God. The most important occurrence of the Son of Man in the Old Testament happens in Daniel 7.13. The context here, I mean, you know, I'm using that a lot, but there are a lot, of, a lot of those things that are necessary to pick up to get this. And I was fascinated too because I didn't get Son of Man either. It's because it's, it, it's used very deliberately by Jesus, but it requires a lot of Old Testament knowledge to really give you the sense of what it carries. So in Daniel 7.13, the context is that there's the slaying of these terrifying four beasts where one like the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days and receives everlasting dominion and glory. This is a tremendous, tremendous vision uh, that Daniel had, and it shaped and was very popular in first century Jewish thinking. Um, now, if we fast forward to the New Testament, looking in the Gospels, Bible scholars group the Son of Man's sayings into three general categories, um, all of which are found on the lips of Jesus. In fact, the Son of Man was the most frequent term Jesus used for himself, and he used it in all of the senses that it came with. Now, the first of those is the apocalyptic sayings, are really the largest group. And those are the ones in which Jesus refers to his coming in the future on the clouds of, 
of heaven with great power and majesty. This connects directly to Daniel 7. This is what they wanted. This is what the disciples wanted, was the victory, the dominion, the glory, and they want it now. Now, the second grouping is a little bit more troubling for them. This is the passion or suffering son of man sayings. Second most sizable group, and Jesus spoke of these things referring to his imminent suffering, death, and resurrection. Now, the expectations of the Messiah didn't line up with this um, at all, but Jesus used it to its full sense there as well, and that was lost in the disciples. And then there's this third grouping, the sayings connected with Jesus' present ministry. Um, these references usually just illustrate the glorious Lord who humbled himself to become human. Jesus is the Son of Man in all these senses. That's why that is such a rich term, and it's important to see it, the way Jesus uses it and how he uses it. Now, how do the disciples misunderstand the glory of Jesus? I mean, you're thinking he's, they're literally on a mountaintop with Jesus. They see this. Now, so you're, you may think in hindsight, because we've seen the end of this story, how could he miss this? But again, look to their perspective. And there are three things that are very clear from the text we read. One, firstly, in verse 32, it says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Okay, Jesus asked them to pray and they go to sleep. This isn't the last time this is going to happen, but it definitely uh, is troubling and different expositors have different reasons for that sleep. John MacArthur suggests these disciples were overcome with sorrow over the foretelling of Jesus' death. They didn't understand it and so they weren't as engaged in prayer as Jesus was. It's a speculation, but it definitely makes sense in light of the the, the verses here. Not only that, they had been awake, or had they been awake earlier in verses 30 and 31, they would have heard Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus about his departure, the very thing they needed to grasp most. Suffering, though facing Jesus, was not the end of his story. It is simply the means by which he would redeem his people and deliver them from sin. That is the deliverance. That is what the power and the glory is coming on the clouds of heaven. The second thing we see is in verse 33. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, Peter is less assertive here than he was with Jesus when, or right after Peter confessed Christ's divinity, his being the Son of God, um, and then Jesus speaks of his suffering, and um, Peter rebukes him sternly. Here, Peter's not quite as assertive. He's more respectful. He says, let us, let us make these tents. What it betrays, though, is, is more important than this, a growing sense of respect and understanding is that he's still focused on preserving the glory of this moment. He would really like to kind of pass that suffering and dying peace and just get to the kingdom of God now. Why bother going to Jerusalem when we can just make a tent? We can set up a place for the presence to dwell now. We're here. 
Peter didn't really know what he was saying. And the scripture says that right there. Um, and I think you would agree, sometimes what we can learn from that is it's better to listen than talk. And then we get that confirmation about listening versus talking in verses 34 to 35. God confirms this. God the Father says, as he, Peter, was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid and they entered as, oh, and they, they entered as the cloud came. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. The voice in the cloud clearly is God the Father. We see this presence of God in the wilderness, leading the people of Israel by day, and also engulfing the mountain, Mount Sinai, when he's giving the law to Moses. Now, God's voice confirms the statement Peter made about Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of the living God. However, God also rebukes Peter, saying, listen to him. The disciples saw Jesus' miracles. They could acknowledge him as the Messiah for that and what God had shown them at that point, but what they really needed to do was to listen and hear all of what Jesus told them, especially the part about his suffering and dying. So to paraphrase Jesus' own words, when we set our minds on the things of man, we can miss the fullness of Jesus' glory. I'll re repeat that a little differently. When we set our minds on the things of man and not those of God, we can miss the fullness of Jesus' glory, even on the mountaintop. Now, this, as I see it, is the essential takeaway from this sermon, that piece that we can miss it. Right? Focusing on what is important to us, let's say we have an illness. This is pressing, right? We pray for a miracle, for healing. Well, we can get so focused on that healing miracle that we actually miss what Jesus may be showing us through this. Surely God is powerful to do this miracle. There's no doubt about that, but what if he doesn't? What then? I mean, this is one of the central things we as people struggle with. What if he doesn't do that? Or you could be tempted to feel badly, like we don't have enough faith. Or maybe there's some kind of unconfessed sin, there's something wrong. I mean, you could almost see Job's friends now accusing him of things that weren't even true. We could be our own worst accuser in this way and yet still miss the big picture. I would ask you to consider Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 3 where the disciples ask Jesus of a blind man. Rabbi, is this man blind because of his sin or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. It was not about this, whether this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There was a bigger picture than the things that we would focus on in this case. If we were the blind man, we might say, where's God's miracle and power? It's easy to miss the bigger glory when we focus on that. And I'm not saying that glibly. I really am not. I know that it sounds glib, but that big picture is 
so much of what God wants to show us, and it's even bigger than we can imagine. The beautiful part about God is that he's patient and gracious with us when we miss it. Praise God. In the transfiguration story, Jesus told the disciples not to be afraid on the mountain. He didn't reprimand them or make a big speech like something we might do, give somebody an earful. What what are you doing? Can't you see it? He instead is patient and comforting and gentle. We also need to be patient with God as he progressively reveals more aspects of his glory to us. Look at Peter's life. He grew in the revelation, right? It was from God. It was not his flesh that understood it, not not necessarily even seeing the miracles, but it was God himself who started him on this journey. Look at the progress. At first, he rebukes Jesus. You won't suffer. There's no reason to die in Jerusalem. He comes along a little further after that, surely being dressed down appropriately by Jesus for saying that. But he still misses the big picture on the mountain. But then fast forward 40 years when he gets to see the whole story from behind. Look at 2 Peter. There's there's an, uh, an account, a comment Peter makes in later life about the transfiguration, and it is evident in his words that he has that big picture. He has the assurance of it, the fullness. He understands the reason for the suffering. He was grieved by it, and he missed it. Jesus was gracious and patient, but he eventually came to see it. So, I've spent some time reflecting on my expectations of God, I think, in trying to bring this back down to earth a little bit, um, if I may. You know, and I, I would be the first to admit that I've missed God's glory on more than a few occasions. Um, but one of the things that sticks out the most to me in this, one of the things I could have missed the most was the idea of becoming a parent. Um, kind of where God worked with me in that. I know you've already heard some of this story, but it bears some repeating because it shows God's glory and his patience. Becky and I wanted children of our own. Um, For a long time, we tried, and we had hoped for that to happen naturally. Um, I never entertained the idea of adopting a child. I certainly never wanted to do that. It's too complicated. You don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know who you're getting, at least if it's our child. We know ourselves. We know kind of what we might be getting. Sort of a foolish idea, but it nonetheless is what, where I was. And after a long time of trying, we realized and it was confirmed that it just wouldn't be possible for us. So there goes my expectation. I mean, I came to a point where I was tearfully praying to God at night after Becky had gone to bed and I, on more than one occasion, saying to God, I don't want this. I do not want this, if this is what you have. But I need you to give me your heart for this because I don't have it. If this is your will, then just help me want that because that's what I need. 
And that was very hard to submit. Very, very hard. I know some of you out here know that as adoptive parents. But uh, it was a process. Um, you know, I went from being adamantly against it to starting to recognize the need to surrender to finally asking God to move me. Not just to surrender, but please just move me. And he did. He was patient. He dealt with me. And when we adopted Evelyn, like Peter after the resurrection, I was able to see the fullness of God's glory and what he had done in a way I never expected. I'm not saying that there's anything better about adoptive children. I'm not saying I would want anyone to go through my experience. But what God did is he showed himself to be something bigger. In my case, I saw him to be something different, a redeemer. He could take those tears and turn them into something joyful. And he would be every bit God, whether he did it or not. I'm sure this would be a different sermon, maybe, application, had he not. And not everything ends that way, as I said from John 9. Whether we are healed or not, the miracle is not the point. It is the greater glory of God that he wants to show, that he has something new to show, that there's an endless, bottomless depth, unfathomable depth to how good he is. I mean, I thought I had an idea even about some of the things in this sermon, and then I started to dig into it, and God just opened up the fire hose, and I'm like, back here like, I can't even take it. There's so much of it. And it just is a reminder that God has no end to that glory that he wants to show us, and he is waiting. So my challenge to you this morning is to examine your lives by asking a couple questions. Um, I'm going to do the same thing because I still have expectations that may or may not be met. So ponder these as we move into communion and spend time this week seeking the Lord to help reveal the answers. One, what expectations do I have that may be causing me to miss the fullness of Jesus? And what things can I do to help me not miss it? I know they're open-ended, but I think that by them being open-ended, it helps us wrestle and engage with this. Look at Peter and look at this story and see yourself in that. Now, as we enter communion, which is a time of reflection and remembrance, I'll also point out that's an example where the disciples missed it. They didn't see the gravity of that moment. They didn't see the gravity of breaking bread in that way. Let's remember that big picture as we now remember Jesus. So I'd like to ask Jim DiBiaso to come up and share with us Lead us in this remembrance. Thank you, everybody. Hallelujah. Let's rise to our feet and sing the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. 
Lord, turn his face toward you and give you peace. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Rejoicing. 
His presence. Make His presence go before you and beside you and beside you, all around you and within you. 